Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. To do what Chloe Dalton has done in her sporting career takes a special kind of courage, a freakish amount of skill and a tonload of dedication and hard work. You see, she's a rare, triple elite athlete. She started off in the WNBL before competing in Rugby Sevens and then the AFLW for Carlton. Each time, it's been less of a code switch and more a leap of faith, delving into a sport she knows little about but is determined to succeed in. And succeed she did. Watching Chloe and the Australian women's Rugby Sevens team win gold at the Rio Olympics still gives me goosebumps today. At the top of her game, she then made a switch to AFLW, reaching the highest levels there, before returning to rugby in a bid to be on the plane to Tokyo. Chloe the athlete may be impressive, but Chloe the person will impress you even more. She's warm, friendly, and someone who's using her platform for powerful change. Launching the Female Athlete Project, Chloe is driving the change she wants to see for all women in sport. But it hasn't always been an easy ride for Chloe. She's fought her own private battles with insomnia and anxiety, which you're about to hear more about. And Chloe's sporting story? Well, it starts in the classic Australian way, mucking around in the backyard. Growing up, I was on the northern beaches, so as a little kid, I just absolutely loved being near the ocean and getting out in the backyard. I was very competitive as a little kid. Um, And I had an older (laughs) brother and a younger brother. My younger brother was kind of more inside playing Xbox, but my older brother and I used to really go at it in the backyard (laughs) playing whatever sport it was. Um, There are a few times I chased him around the backyard with a cricket bat wanting to knock his head off because he'd often <laughs> change the rules. Like if ever, if it ever got to that point where I was going to beat him, like at the very last minute, he'd change oh. the rules so that he he would win. Frustrating. So frustrating. <laughs> I used to get so mad. And you know, when you're a little kid, you kind of can't regulate your emotions. So it was just like the worst <laughs> thing in the whole world that he would do that. And what was the, what was the game of choice usually that you played in the backyard? I reckon touch footy would have been up there. One-on-one was tricky. And we used to think that dad being... When you're a kid, you think your your parents are really old. So we was like, we were like, oh, he's an old man. He's not going to be out of <laughs> what in his twenties. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and he used to play rugby back in his day. So we'd always be like, oh, dad reckons like talks up his game. Reckons he's real good. He's going to come out here and he's going to be slow. And he'd come and play us. So it'd be me and my brother on the same team versus dad. And dad would just put this deadly right foot step on us <laughs> all game. And he just he just absolutely annihilated us. So that's where your competitive streak comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, is that something that just came naturally to you or to be competitive? I think so. I sometimes wonder whether that's like kind of an innate thing that, that was mm. always part of me. I knew it, whatever I was doing, whether it was school or sports stuff, I was always super competitive, not necessarily against other people, but I mm. think just for me individually, I always had very high expectations for myself mm. and what I wanted to achieve. When did like more organised sport come into your life? I played a whole range of sports. Um, the point when it probably started to become more competitive, I did nippers down at my local beach um, at Warrywood and there was a basketball family down there who also have the same last name as us. People often get confused. So man by the name of Brad Dalton, who same name as my dad, also has a daughter named Chloe Dalton, so people <laughs> would get very confused. Um, but Brad and his family were very well known in, in the basketball um, sport, I guess. He, he represented Australia and, and his sisters did the same. So... He approached me one day when we were down at Nippers at Warrywood Beach and he said, have you ever played basketball before? And I said, no, I've probably mucked around at a local hoop, but I've never played competitively. Mm. And so I went down to 
Manly Warringah, which is my local rep club, and um, yeah, started playing and just fell in love with it, um, and and kind of just worked my way from there up through the through the rep ranks, and then um, on from there towards bigger things. And you worked your way through the ranks. Were there other sports that also took your fancy that you were interested in at the time and that you played and were good at? I was pretty good at cross country. Mm-hmm. I think that was the sport. I did a little bit of athletics, but I was pretty good at cross country. And I think that that was probably a big thing that I thought that that's where I was going to go far. I kind of always had these dreams of, of wanting mm-hmm. to go far in sport. And I thought that that was going to be my avenue. And then once I started playing basketball, I was like, maybe this is the one. How early did you dream of big things in sport and what were those big dreams? I was seven years old when I watched Kathy Freeman win gold at the Sydney Olympics and I watched a whole range of events at that Games but for me, seeing the way that she zipped on her full body suit and carried the weight of a nation on her shoulders Mm -hmm. and performed under that level of pressure and won that gold medal that was, I still so clearly remember in that moment deciding I want to win an Olympic gold medal. So then when you were good at basketball, did that then change? You're like, okay, well, I want to play for the Opals. Yeah. 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 So I really wanted to um, represent the Opals. And I think as I started to play more basketball and become more serious about it, and I went to the New South Wales Institute of Sport. And then when I was selected to be part of the Flames, I was kind of like, oh, I'm on my way here. Yeah. Like this is this is heading in the right direction. Um but it turned out a little bit differently to what I expected. I, I spent my two seasons there pretty much sitting on the bench. Mm. Um, I would work as hard as I possibly could at training because I feel like with basketball in particular, I feel like that was one of those sports that people would always say, you got to be the first one in the gym and the last one to leave and, and that's mm. how you become successful. And I, I felt like I put in all of these hours and hours and repetitions and I just wasn't good enough and, and didn't get my shot really to mm. to prove myself in that capacity either. Did you ever think, because a lot of WNBL players um, have dreams of going over and playing college basketball or WNBA, was that ever something that you looked at or, or thought about? Yeah, I actually, when I was in year 11, started to look quite seriously at the idea of going over to college. I ended up getting to a point, it was quite interesting, I, I battled insomnia a little bit when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and ended up doing a little bit of work with a counsellor or a psychologist at that point in time. And I actually had quite significant anxiety about this idea of having insomnia and anxiety and actually travelling to the other side of Mm. the world and being really far away from my family at at quite a young age. Mm. Um, So that was probably part of the reason that I ended up making the decision that I just wanted to stay home and see what I could Mm. pursue back on home soil. Do you still suffer from anxiety and insomnia? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I yeah, I don't actually talk about it publicly a huge amount. Um so last year when I was in Melbourne playing AFLW, um had a couple of things happen and my anxiety got really bad. Mm-hmm. Um and I had quite a long period of time leading up into the AFLW season and during the AFLW season where I pretty much would go entire nights without sleeping. Wow. Um, would rock up to training and um, feel I, f- I would look forward to training because for mm. me that was the part of my day that I was like, this is where I can be physical and I can run and I can mm. try really hard. Mm. 
And if I if I get all my energy out, mm-hmm. if I run as fast as I possibly can and I just exhaust myself, then I'll go home and maybe I'll sleep. be able to sleep. Didn't necessarily work like that. Yeah. I kind of just ran myself into the ground. And and after a not, not long period of time, obviously the team had some incredible things that they put in place and through the AFL Players Association, they've got a really, um, really amazing mental health program. So mm. got me in touch with psychologists and psychiatrists who I still work with now, not mm. as frequently, but just for, for um, I guess, regular check-ins and things like that. Safe. Maintenance, yeah. yeah. Um, and heaps better now. So I've had to learn a whole lot of strategies for, for dealing with, with the anxiety and with the insomnia. Mm. And um, thankfully I'm in a much better place. And it's also been really nice being back home in Sydney with family yeah, and yeah. having that nice support network around yeah. me too. Yeah. What, what was the crux of that would keep you awake? I don't know if there was particularly one thing that would keep me awake at night. It was almost, I almost had this feeling when I was stuck in, in the peak of that anxiety and, and the not sleeping, I felt like I was never going to be able to sleep again. Yeah. It was kind of that feeling of like, how do I ever mm. fix this? And I think particularly as an athlete, a lot of the time effort is rewarded with success. Like mm. if you, the harder you work at something, mm-hmm. generally you have improvements mm. physically. But sleep for me was the most frustrating thing because mm. the harder I tried, mm. the harder it was to sleep. The more I wanted to fall asleep, the harder it was to fall asleep. And so in my brain, I was just like, how do I fix this? Yeah. And so at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing that's helped me the most has been being okay in letting go of that control. I think yeah. that was kind of the key thing, which took me such a long time to get to with with the help mm. of Sykes and, and things like that. But just being able to be okay with the fact that I wasn't going to be able to control it. And some mm. nights I was going to feel stressed and anxious, but to rather than trying to fight that and be so frustrated with mm. that, not being able to sleep, just being like, you know what? Tonight, don't feel great, but I'm just going to try and roll with it and yeah, see how we yeah. go, which is really hard to do. Lack of sleep. It can be so devastating. Like <laughs> someone who hasn't slept for a different reason mm. in a really long time. Like it affects performance, it affects everything, affects how you think about stuff, your emotions. How did it affect you? Like you talk about it being so frustrating at night, but how then were you able to perform as an athlete and even function as a human in those days without that sleep? Probably not very well, mm. but I also surprised myself. I think there were mornings when I'd get out of bed and I I genuinely had been awake for every hour of the night oh, wow. or maybe had fallen asleep for the last two hours of the night and I'd get up and I'd either need to go and um, train, go to the gym or go to work or whatever that looked like and then obviously have AFLW training later in the day. There wasn't really ever a day where I didn't make it through and I think that mm. kind of surprised me because it was those mornings of like I can't, like I've had multiple nights of mm. not sleeping at all, I can't possibly make it through the day but I often surprise myself in my ability that I probably didn't realize was there Mm. that you can still get by and I think probably that element of trying as much as I could to use training and performing in games Mm. as I don't know if a distraction is the right word but I was so motivated to not let what was going on with my mental health disrupt that. Yeah. And it ended up, I ended up having a really good season with Carlton and 
came second in, I was runner up in the best and fairest awards and I kind of just surprised myself on a lot of fronts with that. Yeah. So when did it start coming down last year? Probably towards the end of the year. So I'd been back home in Sydney for a few months. Um, Obviously Tokyo had been postponed. That's probably not the the most fun thing to throw in when you're feeling anxious yeah, and, yeah. and uncertain. uncertain. Yeah. yeah. And um, out of your control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was probably towards the end of last year and I just started to feel really settled at home and I just think I, yeah, made really good progress with the psych and the skills that I was trying to develop. Mm. And yeah, it's been nice to not, because there was a period of time where I was having to use sleeping tablets to mm. even fall asleep. So to be able to come completely off sleeping tablets and do that all on my own felt yeah. like a very big win. Yeah. And just maintenance now with, yeah, yeah psychologists and psychs and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So that first happened at school. Let's go back to WNBL. Yes. And the Sydney Flames. Yeah. You weren't getting that much minutes on the court. Not yeah. going to go overseas. You wanted to make a change. <laughs> I love this story. But before we get to that story, why change? Why did you ever think about or how much did you consider, okay, well, maybe I need to swap. WNBL teams, why not? Mm. Well, maybe I need to stick it out here. Why, mm. you know, your passion was basketball. Did you not want to stick it out? Yeah, I think that one's really tricky. And if you look at, I guess, change across a range of, not even in a sports context, whether it's business or whatever it is, I think there's a real element of risk that you take in doing something like that. Mm. But I think there's also a balance between being realistic about when something's not working. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that was the point I was at. I don't think I was sitting on the bench and I was like, I'm the best player in the league. I should be playing all these minutes. Like I was quite self-aware that I wasn't the best player in the mm. league. I felt like maybe if I was given some more chance to have more minutes on the court, I could have developed mm-hmm. into a better player. But it wasn't this thing of I felt like I was being really hard done by. It was frustrating mm. and it sucked sitting on the bench. Yeah. But I think for me I had to be quite realistic and I kind of almost worked backwards from that goal of wanting to win the gold medal and it's like, well, you've got to be – selected for the Opals, be in that team, mm. but you you should be playing big minutes in the WNBL if you're going to get selected for the Opals. So I'm like, I'm a long way off that. Yeah. How am I actually going to achieve that? I might need to switch sports. I don't know how many people think like that, but that's kind of I what I did. Because your goal, I guess your goal wasn't Opals, right? Your goal was Olympic gold medal. Yeah. So how am I going to get there? Yeah. So what was the next step? <laughs> so I went home one day and I went on to Google and I typed in list of Olympic sports. <laughs> so this was in 2014, I think it was. I looked at... Two years before Rio. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very ambitious. I looked at triathlon because, I, as I said, I was quite good at cross country. Yep. Wasn't bad on the bike, but didn't love swimming. So I crossed that off the list. <laughs> I looked at taekwondo, but I thought I was probably too late in life. I think I was 19 at the time. So I felt like I was too late in life to start <laughs> taekwondo. Then I saw that Rugby Sevens was going to be in the Olympics for the very first time mm-hmm. at Rio in 2016. Two years later. Mm-hmm. Yo. And you were like, that's me. Yeah. I had grown up in a rugby family and I had, so my older brother and younger brother used to play at my local club mm-hmm. at Warringah Rats. And I used to go and sit on the hill and watch them play. And at halftime, I'd take a tee out and just mm-hmm. put a footy on the tee and try and kick it from the sideline. And, and I wasn't too bad. And people would always come up to me and say, you should play rugby. Yeah. And I'd turn to them and I'd say, girls don't play rugby. Oh, I must kill you now. <laughs> it yeah. does. It does. And I think looking back on that, there were some incredible girls and incredible women mm. playing rugby back then, but I just didn't know about mm. them because I couldn't see them. Um, and so obviously this 
this opportunity that so many incredible women before me fought to get it into the Olympics. It wasn't that they weren't there. It wasn't when I was a kid, me saying girls don't yeah. play rugby. That wasn't actually true. It was just the fact that I couldn't see them. Yeah, yeah. How then do you go about, so you've never played, but you know the rules and mm. you've been around rugby, you know, growing up. So how do you go about two years out from Rio getting selected and playing rugby, learning the rules, learning how to tackle? What did you do? I called up the coach of my local club at, at Warringah Rats and I said, hey, my name's Chloe. I've played basketball. I used to play a little bit of touch footy. I think I'm like maybe would be okay playing a bit of rugby. What do I do? And he's like, oh, I'm actually coaching the New South Wales Sevens team at the moment. Why don't you come down to training? And I was like, no, no, no. You missed the part where I've never played <laughs> <Yeah>. before. <laughs> I'm not coming down to train with New South Wales. Like that's not happening. He's like, no, no, no. We've got a couple of new girls. Like just come on down. So I remember I was working, I was working a random office job doing data entry and I went down in my lunch break and to Rebel Sport and I bought a pair of Adidas boots. They were black and pink. They were really ugly. <laughs> And that afternoon I went to the New South Wales Sevens training and I remember sitting in my car and watching these girls walk past me and I'm I'm not huge. I'm, <laughs> I'm work, it's a work in progress. I'm trying to get bigger still, but I'm not very big. And I remember watching these girls walk past and I was like, what have I got myself into? <laughs> um, and there was, there was an assistant coach there um, who kind of broke the game down into into basketball terminology for me, which helped. And cool. I kind of had a bit of a run around. And, and I wasn't horrendous, but I wasn't amazing. Yeah. Um, and then from there, took a step back and went and joined. Well, I kind of kept training with them, but mm. um, went and joined my local club and played a season of 15s there, which is cool. was hugely beneficial because mm. it was learning the basics, like tackle and learning the ruck, which was such a foreign concept. Yeah. You can watch as many games as, of rugby as you want in your life, but actually – going to clean someone out and getting your body into those positions is so foreign for yep. someone who's never done it. So I remember the first time I learned to tackle, I went down on the beach and on the sand. You kind of get down on one knee and learn to tackle on the sand because it's a bit softer mm-hmm. to land on there. And and um, my coach at the club, um, lady by the name of Erin Morton, um, she said to me, you just got to get lots of repetitions in. Mm-hmm. And so I went into the backyard with my brothers who are about six foot four, probably about 100 kilos each. And I found every piece of protective equipment I could find. So I put a headgear on, shoulder pads, mouth guard, the works. And I got down on one knee and I just said to them, run at me. Wow. And they did over and over again. And I couldn't move my neck for about a week. Wow. But it taught me how to tackle. Wow. And it gave me the confidence that if I can learn to tackle them, there wouldn't be a huge number of girls that I wouldn't be able to tackle. What about your brothers? Were they like, they hold back at all? Or they were like, no. I'm going to do this. I think originally they both probably found it a bit strange. Mm. Um, I think the fact that similar to them, they wouldn't have seen a lot of girls playing mm. rugby growing up and it was probably quite weird for them. I guess that had kind of been their space for so many years and I'd been playing these other sports. So for me to kind of come into their environment and, and playing at the same club as them as well yeah. um, was probably a little bit strange. But a memory that's, that stays really clear with me is I went down to, to Rat Park one day and I just asked my little brother to do some tackle work with me mm. and a couple of the, his teammates were there, a couple of the boys that he'd played with for years and they were just absolutely ripping into him. And I just remember him turning to them one day and he just said something like, she tackles way better than I ever will or something along yeah. those lines. And, and that was just such a... Um, whoa, I'm getting a bit emotional I talking know, about I can that. see that. I can um, feel it. Yeah, I just think 
that's been a very um, beautiful part of that process mm. is my family have been a very big part of that journey, but I think the way that my brothers have been such a big support in everything that I've done, whether that's my sport or the work that I'm doing on the side with with the female mm. athlete project, um, they're both very hands-on with that and they right. just have always been so incredibly supportive of my visions and my dreams and it's just been a very special thing to have with the two of them. They must dine out on the story that their sister won a gold medal in Rio. Do they dine out on that? Do they claim it like it was our tackling Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, got you there. Yeah, they love it and probably claim that them drinking beers in the stands and, and yelling really loud <laughs> contributed to that gold medal too. Um, do you think as you climbed up these rugby ranks and had to do it pretty quickly, do you think the fact that you were a professional athlete with the WNBL, would that have open some doors for you? I think so. Um, I think that was something that I have struggled with a little bit, this idea that I didn't ever want to be someone that just walked into the team. Mm. And I don't think that the sevens program would have allowed that. No. It's it's definitely <laughs> the level of performance in, in the program is mm. mind-blowing. So it, I wouldn't have got away with that regardless mm. of who I was and what sport I'd come from. But I think it helped me in my preparation and professionalism, the way that I was able to apply myself to learn those skills. Mm. I think there were skills that transferred like just general hand-eye mm. coordination and ball skills and then the aerial element of the game. So if anyone's watched Rugby Sevens, the restarts are a very big component of the game because after anyone scores a try, there's a drop kick to restart the game mm. and it's quite competitive because one team will chase mm. 10 metres and jump up in the air and, and compete for it. So it's really big because... Games of sevens are so short. So there's mm. seven-minute halves, mm -hmm. 14 minutes in total. So the key is to hang on to the ball. Mm. So if you can win the ball off the restart and you can hang on to the ball, the likelihood of scoring more tries, they've done the statistics around it, but the likelihood of scoring more tries is obviously very high. Yeah. So I was able to bring in that element of my game and then kicking, which also obviously not from basketball, mm. but kind of takes me back to when I was a little kid and I'd go out and kick the footy. I started drop kicking. It was my, I think my debut tournament in the Aussie jersey up in Noosa. We were playing the Oceania tournament mm -hmm. against um, New Zealand and Samoa and Tonga. And I was just kicking and training the day before and our coach, Tim Walsh, at the time saw me drop kicking and he was like, can you drop kick? And I was like, I've only ever done it mucking around, like not mm. properly at all. We ended up playing New Zealand in the final of that tournament and I became the kicker. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never done it in a game in my life and I kind of just suddenly was thrown into this role. Mm. But it ended up working out really well for me because that was a way for me to get my foot in the door. Yeah, right. And looking back, my other skills probably weren't as good as what the girls who were in that team were at that point in time. Yeah. But because I could use my kicking, it gave me an opportunity to go away in tournaments and play, which then gave me more minutes more time on the field to develop the other skills. And so then I had time for those skills to then catch up. Yeah. So you started in 2014. Mm -hmm. By 2016, you'd work your way up and you're there at the Olympics. When you arrived in Rio, describe to me what you were feeling then because this is part of your, your goal mm. and you've done it and it's been a really quick ride. I think that element of it, it was, yeah, it was probably – two and a half years pretty much that mm. that run to try and get to Rio 
which is a very short period mm. of time. But there was a really big element where I felt like all of the years of playing sport at an elite mm. level had contributed to that. Mm-hmm. I think there were probably a few people along the way. I remember this guy that I went to uni with, some throwaway comment like, oh, I wish I was a girl and I could make an Aussie uh, team that, that <clears> easily. <throat> and I think that really frustrated me when he said that. But I think my, I guess my argument within myself was that I'd put in so many years to prepare to be at an Olympics. And yes, it wasn't specifically for rugby, mm. but I felt like I'd put so many hours into turning my body into the best athlete I yeah. could be. So when I got there, it was overwhelming and crazy and I can't even, it's really hard to describe what it actually feels like to go. And I, I hope when I go for a second time that I'll kind of have a little bit more perspective to be able to sit and take it in. Yeah. But just being in the village and there was one day I'm just sitting down eating dinner and I see these two athletes walk past. I'm like, that looks like Serena, uh, Serena and Venus. Oh, stop I was like, it. They, don't, they don't walk past me. Stop it. Like I'm, I'm some nobody. Like I don't just have them walk past me while I'm sitting <laughs> eating dinner. And then of course it was them because why wouldn't it be them? You're in the Olympic <laughs> village. Like just like things like that. It's like no, my brain like, was just like, like, Serena. <laughs> <laughs> like just little things like that would happen. And I'd be like, whoa. She's like my, like, I don't fangirl anyone, but I fangirl Serena Williams <laughs> completely. <laughs> I would lose my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get a photo with her because I didn't think it was Serena Williams. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Idiot. Is this you? Is this yeah, I've got another chance. <laughs> That'd be really cool. Um, and do you break your arm three times in the lead up? To Rio? Yes. You wore an arm brace. Yes. So in my debut tournament on the World Series, Mm. we travelled to Dubai. So this was at the end of 2014, Mm. December of 2014. We were playing against France and something funny in a tackle happened. I didn't think that I'd broken my wrist, but it just felt a little bit dodgy. And as I said, the games are really quick, but we've got a two-minute half time. So I said to the physio, I was like, oh, can you have a look at this? And she was like, oh, quickly strap it up. Off you go. See how you go. And I got back out there and I tried to throw the footy and I just couldn't pass. Mm. So I ended up coming off and got taken to the hospital in the ambulance and got the x-rays done and um, came up that I'd fractured my left ulna. And I had to stay overnight and wait for the surgeon back home in Australia to wake up because of the time difference. Mm for the surgeon to decide whether I should fly home and operate here or whether Mm. they should operate there because they needed to put a plate and screws in my arm. Oh, Jesus. And I was in this hospital in a foreign country all alone and I had these doctors coming up to me and they'd say, how did you break your arm? I said, playing rugby. And they said, oh, well, that's your fault then. Mm. And I kind of looked at them and they said, girls shouldn't play sports like that. And I didn't even say anything back. I was kind of like a little kid at that point in time. I mean, I was like 19, 20 years old and I would have a very different response now, I think, to what I did back then. But I was just so blown away that I was already feeling so vulnerable and alone Mm. with an injury in my very first tournament. And for them to say something like that was pretty confronting. Because it was before you guys, you know, were able to get on that world stage in Australia's eyes, in the Olympics, like you guys were, you were winning so many gold medals, but very few people gave you the attention and the credit that you deserve. And there was that feeling. We had Tiana Penatani on and she was Mm -hmm. saying, you know, they turned up 
to the airport and people ask if they're playing equestrian, <laughs> like you're part of the Australian equestrian team. Yep. So she's like, no, rugby. And they're like, mm-hmm. the girls don't play rugby. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of that before pre-Rio, wasn't there? Yeah, a lot. And I think a big part of what we were trying to do as a team was trying to change these perceptions, mm. not change perceptions of what people viewed female rugby players to be, mm. but changing this idea that girls don't play rugby mm. and if they do play rugby, we play rugby well. Mm. I think that was the biggest thing when people watched us in Rio and it was at a great time mm. back home. I think it was 8 or yep. 9 a.m. in the morning. Yep. So it allowed so many people to watch it. And the beautiful thing about Rugby Sevens is you don't really have to know much about rugby to understand what's going on. Like it's quick and it's exciting and it's fast-paced and you can have a short attention span mm-hmm. to watch it. And I think... That was a really key part of it. But we played the game really well. Mm -hmm. And I think that was such a a turning point Mm. for people who saw that. And they were like, these girls are good at Mm. what they do. And there's no better way to turn around people's perceptions than to win that gold medal. What was the feeling like? I'm sure you've explained this a thousand times. Take us there to that moment that it's full time and you've realised that that dream that you've had since you were seven years old is now reality. The initial feeling was a sense of relief. Mm. I don't remember the gold medal match at all. <laughs> really? Like I was I was on there for every minute of the game and I don't remember it. <laughs> like I've watched it like once or twice maybe since and I was like, oh, missed that tackle. Good. <laughs> Didn't remember doing that. Like just like I hate watching it back. But I, yeah, I there was just so much adrenaline surrounding it that yeah, I, I, I don't actually remember that feeling until that final siren went and had this flooding feeling of relief and then we all jumped on each other and everything and then it was such a beautiful moment when we linked arm in arm I think Alicia Quirk one of the girls had the Aussie flag and linked arm in arm we ran towards our family and friends in the stadium Mm. and they lifted us up into the stands with them yeah and to be able to stand there and hug these people that had been such a huge part Mm. of my journey um I've got this this photo that I love, a photo from National Cross Country when I was 11 years old mm-hmm. and it's got my family and my cousins and mum and dad and granny and then it's also got the exact same group of people in Rio in 2016, oh, however many years later that was, mm. they're supporting me and it was just a really beautiful moment to be able to acknowledge everything that they have mm. done to support me in this journey. Post-Rio? Yes. How did things change? Like how did things for you personally, but also from what we've talked about with misconceptions about women's rugby, how did those perceptions, because I feel like it, it changed overnight from that moment, people's perceptions of rugby, of women's sports, of women in rugby completely changed. Mm. Did you notice that with the, for you personally and professionally? Yeah, I think there was probably two sides to it. I think my favourite element was seeing now at grassroots level how many young girls there are playing rugby. Mm. Like I get to go and help out at at local clubs and it's my favourite thing to do. Seeing like five or six-year-old girls like putting a headgear on and running around making tackles and they love it. I'm like, this is sick. Like this is so cool. And then also when I was, I got to go back to my school Pimble Ladies College Mm. and I was coaching Rugby Sevens there last year. And there were a couple of girls who I think were in year 11 or 12 and they came up to me after a training one day and they were just asking how my training was going and things like that. And they said to me, do you know we actually watched your game when we were in year eight 
And that's when we decided we wanted to start playing rugby. Wow. So you were there, Kathy Freeman, Chloe? I don't know if I'd go Stop that far. Because you <laughs> you're too humble. But you were. that. You were that, that moment that they watched the Olympics that, that changed everything for them. Yeah. And that blows my mind a little bit mm. because when I think back to looking up to those athletes like Kathy and like the fact that sometimes I even, when I have to get my gold medal out to show people, I don't just get it out myself and look at it. When I'm showing someone, sometimes it's so weird to to hold it and think that like it's my own one. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy to think that there was little girls who watched that because I feel like, okay, when I watched Kathy when I was seven, I feel like that changed the course of my life, that mm. moment, mm. which is a pretty big statement. And, and it might not be the same for these girls. They might just play rugby for fun. They might not want to win a gold medal. But it's mm. pretty cool that, a moment in time like that, something that I was part of, can be part of a change. Mm. Were you ready for such a spotlight to be put on you and the team after Rio? Because you, it was a bit of spotlight, but not as intense as it was after you won that gold medal. Yeah. I think the, probably the hardest part was the pressure on us to perform after that. Sure. I think when you win a gold medal and then you go back into the World Series and are playing against this opposition, there's this expectation that you win every game. Mm. And that was really hard. Mm. But I think there was also an element where I remember after we won the gold medal, so many people came up to not so many, there were a few people who came up to us and they're like, you're going to get all these sponsors flooding in. You're never going to work a day again <laughs> in your life. Like you've made it. Yeah. And that was the most unrealistic thing ever. Yeah. So there was also, I think, that part of it where... It was a, a huge moment to be a part mm. of and everyone absolutely loved it and got so on board. But kind of once the Olympics dies down again, you're, you're back to reality, you're back mm. to real life and going to training and putting in all this effort and hard slog that isn't necessarily in the spotlight either. Can I ask you about equal pay? Because mm-hmm. that was a big thing for Rugby Sevens at the time um, to get that equal pay because you girls were the world champions. You had the gold medal. Uh, you were the household names. Like, Everyone knew Chloe Dalton, Elliot Green, Charlotte Kaslick, Shannon Parry can go on and on and on. But you still weren't getting paid as much as the men's sevens. Big talking point in the country at the moment with Mm. equal pay and women's rights. But how frustrating was that for you? Incredibly frustrating. I think when I look at when I first started in the program in 2014, it was at a point where girls were on full-time contracts of fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year and had to move into state and pay rent and, and do all of those things. There's been an incremental increase over time and, and we're at a point now where it's um, we can definitely live comfortably on a full-time salary and, mm. and playing that sport and I think that's a big part of it. But it's so frustrating to be continually fighting this battle to justify why you deserve to be paid mm. the same amount. Where are we at now? What's the situation at the moment? Um, there was a collective bargaining agreement where minimum uh, minimum wage is now the same across the men's and women's programs, um, but I believe that the higher end of the scale, they're not equal. That makes no sense. Obviously, you can't probably say too much. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> so I won't put you in that position, <laughs> but I think it's it's important to highlight. So we've we talk about equal pay, but there's always when sporting organizations, you got to read the five print, I think, when sporting organizations talk about equal pay because there's, um, you're right, minimum wage might be the same, but there's different things, but it makes absolutely no sense. Um, but let's 
talk about the AFL switch because everything's happening in rugby. You won the gold medal, got the full-time contract there. Why the switch to the AFLW? I got to the point with rugby where I just wasn't enjoying it mm. as much as what I had previously. I think it's a very demanding sport. The nature of the training is very high intensity, day in, day out. You have to put yourself in very uncomfortable positions. And I guess for me, I kind of got to the point where I was like, I'm going to take some time off. So I kind of stepped away from the program at the end of 2017. Mm -hmm. And not too long after that, I think early in 2018, Carlton had heard, I think one of the list managers at Carlton had watched a bit of footage about Rugby Sevens and he was like, I reckon you girls would go all right at AFL. <laughs> so got flown down to Carlton and picked up and taken to the club. They said, we'd love you to come and play in the VFL. So come on down, find a job, place to live, come and play. And if everything goes well, then hopefully we'll draft you. You're Northern Beaches, New South Wales, Sydney, Sydney, New South Wales girl. Yes. That's so rugby league, rugby union. Did you know much about AFL? No. No, <laughs> no, I really didn't. I like I would see the Swans on TV, but yep. I just didn't have any understanding of the game. So I didn't, I didn't know the rules, and I didn't know how it worked. Mm. And I think I was always confused by Melbourne's obsession with this game. Yeah, I never understood it. I had a few friends who were Carlton supporters and who absolutely loved it, but for me, I just couldn't understand why everyone was so obsessed. Yeah. So I was going to have a crack at this sport that I didn't even know the rules of. Again, very ambitious. I like, <laughs> you know what? You say ambitious. I absolutely love it, Chloe. Like, I feel like you're, you never settle. Like, you and you're a risk taker, would I be right? And you like to challenge yourself. You love a challenge. You don't want to sit there idle. Like, what's yeah. next? Yeah. I yeah. Like, really admire that Thank in you. you so much. But am I right? Are you a risk taker? Do you like a challenge? Well, I'm pretty like, I'm pretty structured and by the book, but I think when you look at what I've done, they're pretty big risks in Huge. that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's a real element to my sporting career where I've I've really loved this opportunity to put myself in those really challenging situations. Uncomfortable positions. Yeah, really uncomfortable. There was this um, Steve Jobs quote that really resonated me when I first started playing footy. It was the heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of becoming a beginner again, something along those lines. But this idea of we'd been so successful in Rio and every time we performed after that, there was all this pressure. Mm. But I really liked this idea that I was playing a totally new sport and I had really high expectations for myself and mm. I wanted to play in the AFLW and I wanted to do all these things there. But it was quite refreshing to also allow myself to not know what I was doing. Yeah, right. Um, and I think that's a big thing with change in area, any, any area is that it's really liberating and it allows you to, I guess, become quite humble in the sense mm. of being open to take on any form of mm. feedback and asking questions. And I think that element of it is really nice. And I always encourage people who are a little bit on the fence with that kind of thing that it's actually a really nice way to look at change, mm. which can be quite scary a lot of the time. But a lot of people don't like not being the one, I guess, in control or being the one who knows everything, being good at something. Like it takes a really strong person to take a step back and just go, okay, I'm going to learn, I'm going to ask questions, I'm going to be in this uncomfortable position and I'm not, I've gone from the top of my game and this is not where I am right now in this 
sport, but I'm going to try to get there. That takes huge strength and courage. Yeah. Yeah. It took a lot of courage, but I think I always had so much confidence in the fact that I hated not being good at things. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So yep. I, I hated not being the best. So I knew that if I put myself in that situation, I was going to do everything I could do mm-hmm. to become the best that I possibly could mm-hmm. be. So I think that's where I kind of balanced it out with myself. Like, yeah, I'm taking a risk. Yeah, I'm going to suck at the beginning, but I've got so much confidence in how stubborn I am mm-hmm. with not settling it, just being average at mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Yeah. What is that switch like on your body? Like how much of a different body structure or um, do you have to have to go from rugby to AFL? It was just running round and round and round and round. That's what it felt like when I first got there. <laughs> do you have to I, be smaller and more agile? Did you have to like yeah. work on your like your weights program to make sure that you you built up different muscles or? Yeah, the weights program was slightly different. When I first went across, so when I was at competing in Rio, I was at probably about 72 kilos. Mm-hmm. When I first moved to Melbourne and started playing in the VFL, I was at about 63 kilos mm. and that wasn't... That's huge difference. Huge difference. I didn't actually try and make that happen. No. I kind of, after Rio, wasn't on three bulk protein shakes a day and wasn't <laughs> doing all this gym stuff. So it kind of naturally, like my body shape, that's just what naturally happens. Yep. Um, so then I had to work to put that weight back on and I, I probably put on about six or seven kilos worth of muscle by the time mm-hmm. I was in my second season of AFL and I was yep. pretty happy with that playing weight. Yeah, I think for me, I probably could have got away with a similar body size because I'm not huge, mm. but it is, you cover a lot more ground. Yeah. I don't think, I think the agility components are relatively similar because sevens, you've obviously got to be right. pretty yeah. agile. Yeah. But I think the biggest shock to the system was just the long kilometres right. of running. How long were you in the VFL before you got the AFLW? And then how long were you able did you, to really feel confident in the game that you've just just started. And what did you do? Did you, there's so many questions in one question here, but I'm like, what? <laughs> tell me how. Um, did you study up? Did you like watch loads and loads of games? Did you ask lots of questions? What, how did you do it? How? I played about half a season of VFL before mm. I was drafted as a rookie and they don't run concurrently the two seasons. So mm. you can play a full season of VFL and then go into the AFLW. Yeah. I, in my first season of AFLW, I probably still didn't have a great idea of what I was doing. Mm. The thing I found quite difficult is that I would ask a lot of questions, but these people had grown up playing and grown up watching the sport and had such a good understanding that I often struggled to find the people that could break the game down into a really simple way for someone who had no understanding of it. Kind of that idea of, I was like, okay, watching back vision, I'd watch it and I'd be like, I feel like I did the wrong thing here, but I don't know what the right thing is. Like, what should I have done? yeah, yeah. And often the response I would get was like, oh, you just got to feel it. Like, you just got to read the ball. And I'm like, I can't do that. I can't <laughs> feel it because I don't know what to feel. Yep. So I think in between season one and season two was when I had my the most amount of growth. Mm-hmm. I had had the call from John Menenti about coming back to sevens following that AFLW season for Tokyo. Mm. So that meant I started increasing my gym load and training down in Melbourne mm-hmm. in the lead up to the second AFLW season that I played. But I also did a lot of work with one of our coaches at the club who worked specifically with a few individual players and we would just sit down. In total, there would have been hours and hours and hours that we Mm. sat down and watched vision of my own game, but vision of other players within the competition who were very good. Mm. 
at playing in the midfield, the position that I was playing, and I'd watch them and we'd work out, this is what she did well here. Mm-hmm. You should try and do something similar to that. Or this is what she did poorly. Then when I was coming up against the opposition, breaking down their vision as well. Like mm-hmm. she's not as good at turning this way or she yeah. goes off a left here or whatever that might look like. And so I felt like I gained a lot of confidence from that because, mm-hmm. again, I probably backed my my strength and my physical ability, but my understanding and skill execution in the game was where I still needed to do a lot of catching up. Yeah. And I just felt like throughout that second season, I just became a lot more comfortable mm. and I didn't feel like a headless chook that was always running yeah, around from yeah. stoppage to stoppage thinking, what do I do now? Where do I go next? Yeah. I feel like I was able to be more calm and try and have more of an impact on the yeah. game. So halfway through that season, you got the call to come. Did you, when you left rugby, did you think that was it? I hadn't completely shut the door. Did you want to go to another Olympics? I did, but I thought that by going and playing AFL, I had probably shut the door. Shut the door. Mm. But uh, John Menenti, who's the current coach of the Aussie Sevens team now, when he first stepped into the role, which I think was a 2018, around about that time, he called me not too long after and we, we kind of kept communication open and, and mm. we've got a really good relationship, the two of us. So we often would chat and he'd kind of check in and be like, just just checking, like, have you changed your mind yet? Um, and he called me, it must have been in 2019 while I was preparing for that following season in 2020. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you want to come back and try and make the team for Tokyo? And I was like, I've signed with Carlton. Like I'm playing the mm. 2020 AFLW season. And I thought he was going to be like, oh, okay, bad luck. Mm. Sorry, like we tried. But he said to me, what if you can do both? What if you start training part-time for rugby down mm-hmm. in Melbourne and still play the AFLW season and then come back as soon as that's done and join the team to prepare for Tokyo? I was like, yeah, <laughs> sick, I'm in. <laughs> I feel like you can't really get much better than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I loved it. So I became a full-time athlete again. Prior cool. to that, I've been doing a bit of physio work because the AFLW is still part-time, so you yeah. can't sustain a, a living from an AFLW salary yeah. yet. Yeah. So I was working as a physio, but what because I then was part-time with rugby and part-time with AFLW, I combined the two to become cool. a full-time athlete again, which is what <laughs> I wanted. Um, so I had pretty big days of training. I'd, I'd alternate my days. So say Monday, Wednesday, Saturday was AFLW training. Then mm-hmm. Tuesday, Thursday, Friday would be rugby training. And so I'd do a lot of work in the gym again. Off. Yeah. Wow, that's heavy. It was mm. a lot. So you played the 2020 AFLW season for Carlton, got cut short because of COVID, come back to Sydney, rugby program, and then pretty soon you would have found out that the Olympics would have been postponed. How did that change your plans? How did it rock your plans? You would have had everything. You like to be in control. You like to have things laid out. <laughs> yeah. You would have had it all laid out. Olympics, go back to Carlton, 2021. Mm-hmm. So we played against the Brisbane Lions in a prelim final on a Sunday afternoon at mm. the end of March. Drove straight home from that game to turn on the press conference that Gil McLaughlin, the CEO of the AFL, was conducting and pretty much said in one sentence, the AFLW season has been cancelled. Mm. Within 24 to 48 hours, I got sent a screenshot from a friend that said that the Olympics had been cancelled. And so I was still in Melbourne at this point and I was like, what do I do? Mm. Like I actually don't know what to do. And so I was on the phone with John Menenti being like, do I just come home? I didn't know if mm. the borders were going to close. Mm. 
whether we're going into lockdown. I wasn't sure what was happening. And he was like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know if there's going to be a spot for you. We don't know if there's going to be a program. Like we we have no idea. There were obviously so many unknowns when it all first Mm. hit. And so I was like, okay, what on earth do I do? I made the decision that if I was going to go into lockdown and be stuck, I'd I'd rather be at home Home. with family in Sydney. Yeah. Um, so I think at the end of March, early April, I made the drive home, packed everything up, drove home, um, to be back with the family on the beaches and started training. I think we're allowed to start training in a one-on-one capacity with the S&C coach. I think they were the restrictions at the time, but that in itself was so strange because we knew the Olympics weren't going to be that year. But I think what the S&C coach decided was, we've got this period of time now Mm. where a lot of countries around the world might not have access to the same thing. Let's just try and use it to get as strong and fast as we possibly can. Yeah, yeah. And then it came to having to then make the decision about do I go back to Carlton for AFLW before the now postponed Tokyo Olympics? Yeah. And so I ended up… For a long time then didn't even know if they were going to go ahead. Exactly. So then I had to weigh up the risk of… I could miss an entire AFLW season for an Olympics that may not go ahead. Mm. So that's the decision that I ended up making. Mm. I just decided I was back in Sydney and I wanted to give it a really good crack to prepare for Tokyo. I think when I look at the Olympics, it's the pinnacle. Mm. And you don't, I I know for me personally, I don't ever want to go and just be a number. I don't want to go and and perform mm. at an average rate. I want to go and I want to be the very best I can possibly be. Yeah. So that's kind of how I came to that decision. And it's been really hard watching the Carlton girls this season and not being out there with them, but yeah. I'm due to go back after Tokyo yes. now for the yeah. 2022 season. You've had surgery on your back as well. So we're racing the clock a little bit. How do you feel and how is that? Is everything on track? Yes. So I had surgery and it's feeling good. Mm. I saw the surgeon for a follow-up. He was really happy with how it's going. Great. It's not the most ideal scenario, but mm. it's a decision that we came to because I wasn't able to bend and train for a few mm. months. And when I sat down with the surgeon, he said, we, if you're a normal person, we probably wouldn't do this. But because of the time frame leading into the Olympics, I think this is probably the best decision. Yeah. And I'm really happy that I got it done. Yeah. I feel I've, I'm tracking really well, been back running the last couple of weeks and hopefully starting to tackle over the next few weeks. Hey, Chloe Dalton does like a challenge. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> does, does like to do things differently. So this yeah. is just part of the whole, I think, your journey, your story, mm-hmm. your legacy in some way. Yes. I want to talk about the Female Athlete Project because I love what you've started. What motivated you to start the Female Athlete Project? There were a couple of things along the way. One of the big elements is when I was at rugby, I got to be an ambassador for Our Watch, Mm -hmm. the organization for the promotion of gender equality for the prevention of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And when I was first approached, I wasn't sure how to take that on and make sure that I was dealing with such an important but really sensitive issue. And I didn't know whether I was the right person for the job. Um, But they said, we'll take you through a training day and, and just see what you think. And part of the training was educating us around the role that sport plays in society. Um, And because it's such a big part of Australian culture, you think about people who sit on the couch and watch it at home or Mm. people who go down to the park and kick the footy or the Mm. soccer ball or whatever that is and then go and watch their teams. It's such a huge part of of what 
we love as mm. Australians. And so what people actually see when they watch sports and professional athletes and elite athletes has the ability to change people's perceptions about mm. cultural norms. And a big part of this education was also the role that gender equality plays in prevent, preventing domestic violence. So this idea that there's a lot of myths around domestic violence mm. for what the main causations are um, in terms of alcohol and drug abuse, history of violence, mm-hmm. but the, the the biggest underlying cause is a gender inequality. Mm-hmm. And so when I went through this training, I guess the biggest thing for me was realising the opportunity I had as an athlete to actually change people's perceptions about women. Mm. And it's not something that I can do on my own. And mm. and obviously there's incredible people like you out mm. here trying to, working <laughs> with me to do the same, achieve the same cause. Mm. Um, but I think I kind of take that responsibility quite seriously. Mm. I obviously, my job as an athlete is to do all my preparation in the gym and on the field and then go out and perform. But I think I just, I think I've got, I don't have the hugest platform in the world, but I think I have a platform Mm -hmm. that I can actually change attitudes. And so during COVID, had a bit of downtime. My younger brother's a a videographer and and a producer. Um, And then then my older brother kind of is in sports marketing and was like for a long time had been telling me like, you got to do this, like just get it off the ground, get it going. And I was like, all right, let's just make it happen. And so we did. So I decided that I wanted to interview other female athletes mm-hmm. um, on a podcast. And since then, we've kind of expanded um, the Instagram as well for the mm-hmm. Female Athlete Project. And what we're trying to do is make information and news about what female athletes are achieving mm-hmm. really accessible and digestible. Because mm-hmm. I think a big thing for me is I love, I say this in my intro, but it's true. I love on my day off going to the beach and getting a coffee and the paper and reading about sport, but I can never no. read stories about women's sport. Yeah. And it makes me so frustrated. But there was that part of me that I was like, well, why don't I just try and do something about mm. it? And if it impacts 10 people, then awesome. I love the Instagram in particular. Like you do make that so digestible, the information about um, female athletes and and female women's sports teams. One um, post that went pretty viral recently was when you um, compared the um, the national teams of the female and the men's in their in their world rankings. Why did you choose to do that, and what was the consequence of that, which you didn't expect? Yes, we chose to compare the two because I I get so frustrated with this argument that women aren't good at sport. Mm. And if you look at our Australian athletes on the world stage, they're quite exceptional. If you mm. look at the cricketers, they're incredible. If you look at our surfers, look at the Matildas, like there's a whole range. I could include rugby sevens in there. Like mm-hmm. the way that the female athletes perform on the world stage is quite exceptional. And so it was a it was a little bit cheeky, this pose, because I knew there would be a little bit of backlash about it. But we did. We literally just got the facts. We didn't We didn't do anything else. We just got the facts of what the current global rankings were for the men's and women's teams. Mm. The unexpected element was there are a lot of teenage boys mm. who came on and made, some of them made arguments that weren't overly rude and disrespectful, but a lot of them were really sexist and inappropriate comments. Mm. A lot of them not based on any rhyme or reason, just... Mm expressing this anger 
mm-hmm. towards the fact that how dare you even compare something mm-hmm. like that, like women's sports is a joke, like this is effing disgusting, like blew my mind. Mm. Did it get you down or did it fire you up? I think it was it was both. It made me really sad. It was mm. quite confronting to read some of the comments and I feel like I was quite hopeful in my generation as a whole, the progress that we've made in moving towards equality mm. and acceptance on so many different fronts. Obviously, there's still such a long way to go, but I think I feel like my generation's been really vocal mm. in making change. So to then see younger teenage boys saying really gross things mm. about female athletes was really disappointing. Mm. But yes, there was the element of this is definitely needed. I don't think what we're trying to achieve with the Female Athlete Project, I don't think I'm going to change the mind of a teenage boy that thinks that women suck at sports and that they don't deserve to play sports. Mm. But what we're trying to do is for the people who want the information and maybe for the people who are sitting on the fence a little bit about whether they should get involved, mm. I'd rather target those people than... Mm. And maybe if you do, then those people can pull up if those teenage boys ever say anything. Yeah. They can speak up yeah, and pull them up yeah, and call it out. Yeah. What impact do you want it to have? I'd love for female athletes who are achieving, who are achieving incredible things to receive the recognition that they deserve and I'd also on a much larger scale and again that word ambitious comes back but (laughs) this is Chloe I love it (laughs) bring it on I'd love for it to be able to change the way that women are perceived not in sport but just the way that women are perceived because as I said with my reason for starting it I I do think that sport has the power to do that Mm. we finished off I don't want to end this conversation but we We have to, but every podcast I finish with asking what advice you would give to your 10-year-old self so you can go back to that little Chloe Dalton. What would you you tell Chloe? I think I would tell her that no level of success is going to change you. I think when I was a little kid, I would look up to these athletes and idolise them And I would picture them and I'd be like, something must have happened to them to turn them into this kind of superhero (laughs) because normal people don't achieve those things. And so I think the biggest thing I realised, and particularly after we won that gold medal, I kind of was like, oh, I'm just the same person as I was before. (laughs) Like, what? I feel a bit ripped off. (laughs) But I think for like myself as a little kid and I'd love for other little kids to see people in those roles, whether sport or not, that they're just normal people who may have worked really hard to achieve something, but you don't have to be a superhero to do it. Mm. I think that's a great message, babe. Thanks. Really strong. Love it. Um, I don't want this to end, but it has to end (laughs) for Chloe Dalton. Best of luck with recovery from surgery. Um, Stoke, things are going really well. Best of luck in 2021 and the Tokyo Olympics and then the AFLW. But most of all, keep doing what you're doing with the Female Athlete Project because I think it's amazing. You've done a really great job and well done. And thanks for being my guest on On Her Game. Thank you so much for having me. I love the work that you're doing and I really love chatting with you. So I've had a lot of fun. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Darcy Thompson. 
Executive Producer, Jennifer Goggin. 